there was a um, a letter that was um, a number of years ago. I saw this published by uh, John MacArthur in one of his sermons. It was a letter from a gal who was part of the charismatic movement. And um, this is what she said to MacArthur. And uh, I just want to read that which he published, that part which he published. He said, or she said, this lady said to him, you know, we lived all of our life in this movement, this charismatic movement, and one thing dominates that movement. It is that Satan is sovereign. If you get sick, it was the devil. If your child gets sick, it was the devil. The devil made your child sick. And even if your child dies, Satan somehow got the victory. And if your spouse or your husband or your wife gets cancer, that's what the devil did. If you had an accident, the devil did that. If you lost your job, the devil did that. If things didn't go the way you wanted them to go in your company or your family, and you wound up with a loss of job or a divorce, the devil did all of that. The devil has to be bound and you, so you have to learn these formulas because you, you have to, you got to bind the devil or he's really going to control everything in your life. The devil dominates everything and he is assisted by this massive force of demons who also have to be dealt with. And you've got to do everything you can to try to somehow bind these spiritual powers and they are invisible and they are fast and they are powerful and they are really impossible for you to deal with on any permanent basis. So it's an ongoing, incessant struggle with the devil. Then she said, we lived our whole lives thinking that everything that went wrong in the entire universe was basically because of the devil. The devil is really sovereign in everything. And even God, along with us, is really struggling like crazy to overcome the devil. Then she also said, I've lived with heart palpitations. Hard one to get out. Panic attacks, anxiety, frightening dreams, waking up in the middle of the night, terrified that the devil might be doing something to my child while he's lying in bed, just living in this constant terror of what Satan was doing. Then when the wrong guy gets elected, Satan put him there. That's when society goes a certain direction. It's all under the control of Satan, and Satan is really the sovereign of everything, and he is really difficult to get. He is, and Satan is really the sovereign of everything, and it is really difficult to get control of him. Even God is up there wringing his hands. Well, I just found that to be a heartbreaking letter to read. As the story goes, the lady got out of that particular church and got connected with a good church in, in her life, I assume, got straightened out from all that kind of thinking. But I want you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to Revelation chapter 20, which some people have called the binding of Satan, but I call it the temporary incarceration of Satan. Now, now as, as, you, as we all know that God has a purpose for history. Satan has a purpose for history. Except God's purpose is going to win. And God's purpose is already being brought to be true today as we share the gospel, as people embrace Jesus Christ by faith. They are made spiritually alive and connected to Christ through faith in Him. So He's making people spiritually alive. He's drawing people to himself to be part of his body, but he's also one day going to cause man to govern this earth again in a manner that he originally intended. He's going to change and restore the environment that was made, uh, that was affected tremendously by sin as creation groans, as Romans chapter 8 says. And here in chapter 20 of Revelation, we have the, an event that takes place at the very end of the tribulation period. I don't have that chart on the, on the board here this morning. But at the very end of the tribulation period, and just as the millennial period is beginning, something happens that is going to be a very, very unique thing. Namely, the temporary incarceration of Satan and all of his demon buddies. So that during the millennial reign on earth, 
Satan and his minions will not be on this planet. They'll be in a different place, which we'll talk about here in a second. They'll be neutralized. They'll be uh, rendered uh, unable to operate as they have. Now, again, if you listen to other people who talk about the millennial period, like there are some churches and seminaries today that teach what's called, as we've already told previously mentioned, it's called all millennialism, but there is no millennial. There is no reign of physical reign of Christ. And uh, that Satan is uh, is actually bound, they would say. They would say that Satan is already bound. And that Satan is no longer really operative. And they would say by being bound already that that there is a free reign for the gospel to go forward and people are coming to Christ. In that sense, Satan is bound because the gospel, people are getting saved. And they, it's a really misconstruing of what the text says. Um, and so we believe that there is a millennial reign coming where Satan will have no effect. His minions who work with him will have no effect. That The, the, the place that where this is found is here in Revelation chapter 20. So take your Bibles and turn to chapter 20 if you're not there already. And it's just three little verses this morning. And they read like this from the New American Standard Bible. And John says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So we see here um, this event that is commonly known as the binding of Satan, but I would like to call it, as I've already said, the temporary incarceration of Satan. Roman numeral one, we find the place of Satan's confinement mentioned here in verse one. And it's noteworthy that it's called the abyss. Now, just like anything else, much debate on whether the abyss is a literal place or not has, you, you find this discussed among commentators who want to assert something that is sort of a non-literal approach to this. But we would take this as from face, face value. The abyss is an actual place. It's a literal place. And I'm going to point that out to you here in a second. The abyss is a, I would call it a temporary waiting room for demons, for fallen angels, including Satan, where they are placed at God's discretion. And so there's one other place in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, which seems to allude to this. It says this in Isaiah 24, So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth, and they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. That seems to be an allusion to what it's going to happen here where Satan and his minions are confined in this place. Uh, it's spoken of also, you might want to jot down a verse like Jude 6, which the ladies are studying on Monday night. There's only one chapter in Jude, so I don't say Jude chapter 1. It's Jude verse 6. And it says there in Jude verse 6, it, it, again, it sort of touches on this. Jude says, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he, that is God, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So a place where they're kept in darkness for a specific judgment to be held later. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You can write this verse down. Second Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. In other words, this abyss is not the judgment. 
it's a place, it's a waiting room that's going to eventually lead to judgment. And then there's also uh, the passage over in Luke chapter 8. I really like this passage. Oh, I, had, I did have that verse up there. Okay, that's that 2 Peter 2, 4 verse. Um, I'll get to that in a second. But Luke chapter 8, verses 30 and 31 is a that passage where there is a, a gentleman, not really a gentleman, but a man who is actually possessed by many, many angels. If you go back to Luke chapter 8, or listen as I read, um, if you go back to verse 28, Luke 8, 28, and seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, this is this man here, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Here, this is a man who is demon-possessed, not by one demon, but literally thousands of demons. Verse 29, for he had been, command, had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for he had, had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. Here's a man who is possessed by demons, who was, who had the ability to break the chains that bound him. He could do literally supernatural things because of this demon possession. But then we learn something in verse 30. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were entreating, who's the they there in verse 31? That would be the demons. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So here is this poor, tormented soul who was literally inhabited by thousands of demons. He's, he calls himself legion. Now what is a legion? A legion is, was a designation for uh, a number of troops that Rome would command. A legion in the Roman army would be approximately 5,000 to 6,000 men, would be considered a legion. So it is believed that this man is literally possessed by thousands of demons. Uh, so much so that we know back in uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 3, that the demons say, are you going to send us, don't send us to the abyss before the time. Um, and that you see that here in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 31. They were entreating him, begging him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Don't send us into the abyss. They don't want to go into the abyss. And so Jesus in Mark chapter 5, where there's just this parallel account of this story, Jesus allows them to go into the pigs. You remember the pigs then jumped over the side of the cliff. And there were approximately 2,000 pigs and we believe there was probably about that many demons. And they inhabited those pigs, and the pigs went berserk. They went berserk. This stuff happens. I remember talking to a fella who was a part of the IFCA a number of years ago, and he was a missionary down in Colombia, in Central America. This guy was part of the IFCA, and he told me stories of things of a supernatural nature that you don't hear told. Things that would just kind of curl your toenails if you heard them. And um, he had seen some really bizarre things. Things like what we see here in the Gospels accounts of, of these demons. And so these demons were real, and they did not want to go to the abyss. Um, over in... Um, Revelation chapter 9. Let's go to the Revelation 9 passage, verses 1 and 2. If you remember, we as we covered this before, there's a portion of Scripture there that talks about the abyss. In Revelation 9, if I can get there, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 11, it says there in Revelation 9, verse 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key... Here it is, the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. 
verse 11. They have a king, speaking of these demons, that's speaking of these demons from the pit. They have a king over them, and the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew is called Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. And so there's the release of angels here right during the mid-portion of the tribulation period. God allows an angel to unlock the abyss, and he allows a horde of angels to go into the world, leaving the abyss, and to further uh, make the tribulation period all that it <laughs> was going to be, a uh, time of or horrific uh, judgments upon the people of this world. And so we find that this place is a real place. This abyss is not a fictitious type of thing. The scripture speaks of it many, many times. And so the angel in verse 1, back to Revelation 20, is given a key, and he's given a chain. He has delegated authority to unlock and to deposit Satan and his minions into the abyss at this time. That takes me to Roman numeral. I didn't go to these other scriptures, but you can jot them down. They kind of relate to this as well. The second point in your outline is this. The power over the abyss. We've already sort of alluded to that. The power over the abyss is God himself has this power. He is the one who possesses the key and the chain, and he is the one who's going to arrest Satan. You see, if Jesus Christ is to rule the millennial kingdom, as we see in Scripture, this thousand-year period, the current ruler of this world must be put aside. He must be neutralized. And if God is going to rule, if Christ is going to rule, then the God of this world has to be dealt with. And if God deals with Satan as easily as it seems to come across in this scripture, then what about all of our problems? Uh, I'll come back to that here a little bit more. It just seems as I read this passage is that God, through his delegated angel, is able to deal rather easily with these evil beings. There's not apparently a great struggle. If there is, it's over pretty quickly. Um, it's wrong for any true Christian, any true follower of Christ, to consider themselves so hopeless and helpless that God, that their lives are out of the control of God. If God can take care of the God of this world so easily, can he take care of my problems as well? I, I have to come to that conclusion. And I have to preach that to myself tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday uh, because I need to remind myself of that. Because I tend like many of us, to think of myself as a victim of my circumstance. And I have to slap myself and say, self, that's wrong thinking. I am not a victim. You know exactly where I am. You have put me in this place. You, you can take care of whatever issues are facing me, whether they are financial, whether they are health issues, or whatever they may be. You are big enough to handle my problems. So, this key that in verse 1 is given to this angel, and I believe it to be Michael the archangel, and many commentators believe that as well, because Michael seems to be the one who's always doing sort of God's uh, dirty work of cleaning up and uh, making things right. Gabriel is the one who does the announcing, and he has the privilege of announcing you know, Mary's uh, coming baby and whatnot, and so Gabriel is the announcer, Michael's the cleaner-upper. And uh, it's interesting to, to me that it was not necessary for Jesus to personally incarcerate Satan. Now, if I'm Satan, I'm going to be a little bit put off by Jesus himself not doing this to me. I don't want somebody lesser than me taking me and throwing me into the clink. I want, I want the big boy to come here and deal with me. But Jesus sends a delegated angel... And so I'm blessed by the fact that God does not give any dignity to Satan by doing this personally. He, he delegates it to an angel. I just find a little bit of, little twist there of the, you know, into the side there. 
Um, this encourages me again that God does not need to be right here, personally, physically, that is. He has given you and me, as believers, his Holy Spirit, his encourager, his comforter. And as a result, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't need anyone else. I have his spirit. You have his spirit. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so Jesus doesn't, he, he sends a delegated representative to do his dirty work. He has power over the abyss. And he does it through an angel. Thirdly, the person being confined is Satan himself. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, and we've looked at this already, verse 9, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says there, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So we, we know immediately that the great dragon is Satan. There's no debate about that. The great dragon is Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, this is probably, you know, uh, mid-trib period when, uh, or excuse me, this is, not mid-trib, this is at the very um, earlier on, after the fall of Satan, rather, that God expelled the angels and Satan to the earth. Some of them were placed on the earth. Some of them later did some really grievous things, and those are the ones who were placed into that abyss and then later released in the mid-tribulation period. So here is Satan and his minions, who are now, they were cast to the earth, uh, he's the serpent of old. He's called that here. He's called a dragon, which seems to suggest savagery and cruelness and his murderous character. He's called a murderer by Jesus in John chapter 8. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's called a roaring lion seeking people to devour. He is merciless. He does not give a break to anyone, even if they are weak. He gives us no time off. He attacks, and he attacks more intensely uh, people who are opening themselves up to him. He's called, again, the serpent of old. A serpent is subtle, elusive, delicate, sneaky, crafty. That's a serpent. So he's like a lion, but he's also like a serpent. And um, Satan and his minions do things to people to draw them away from God even very subtle things. And so he can come across, not as a roaring lion, but he can come across as a very, very close friend. You know, Eve, has God really said that you should not eat? I mean, he, he just kind of slides alongside of Eve, not like a roaring lion in that instance. He just kind of comes, he comes next to her like, you know, Eve, listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth about this. I'm your best bud. Has God really? He comes across as your best buddy sometimes. He's very subtle. And it's like sometimes his devices can be so insidious and so constant that we get used to him and we are like the frog in the kettle that gradually, the, as the water is heated up, we don't even know that the water is being heated up and we're being cooked to death before we actually know we're being cooked to death. And Satan is that subtle. And the souls and minds of, of, of men and women are led to areas of life and action that they would not normally try except that they've been led astray by Satan. He's, one writer called Satan an incrementalist. I thought that was interesting. He called Satan an incrementalist. I never would have thought of that on my own. What did he mean by that? He says, well, he, he kind of worms his way into our lives inch by inch. Seducing. Just sort of bit by bit. It's not big leaps of seduction. You'd catch on to that, but just little bits here, little bits, little bits, over time, Bit, 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 and over the passage of time, you've moved from here to here. Not in one big leap, but gradually, incrementally. 
You've been moved. He's the deceptive one. He's the one, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says, he's the accuser of our brethren. He's the accuser of our brethren. This is Satan. This is what he's like. This is the one who we are dealing with. And we need to realize that he is a clever and intelligent um, person to to deal with. That reminds me of that verse in Jude chapter Jude Jude eight verse eight, where I had this on the board earlier, where it talks about it's talking about false prophets and teachers who have crept into the, the church very sneakily. And it describes their manner in Jude 8. It talks about in the same manner, these men, that is these men who have crept in, these creeps, who have crept in also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority. Re- then it says they revile angelic majesties. These men are so bold and so brazen, they claim to uh, have power over angelic majesties. Um, reminds me of watching in previous years gone by. I haven't watched these shows for a long time, but I used to watch what's called the Trinity Broadcasting Network on TV just to get a, a feel of what's being said out there. And I remember watching that, and there was a rather charismatic uh, person on there, and he was talking about binding Satan and, and dealing with Satan and telling the devil off. And going off on a rant for a few minutes, just saying that, and I found that a bit amusing. Uh, and it's also kind of sad, too, but it was initially amusing. But it reminded me of this passage where these, and these creeps, these men who have crept in unaware, they revile angelic majesties. And then the very next verse, Jude 9, says, but in contrast to what these guys do, in contrast to these revilers of angelic majesties, it says, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him, that would be the devil, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael himself was not willing to do what many of these TBN preachers, Trinity Broadcasting Network preachers, or preachers in churches today do. They claim to bind Satan. They claim to tell him off. They claim this, that they can they can hold him back or whatever they claim. Michael the archangel didn't even do that, folks. He did not even he he dealt respectfully with one who who probably was was of a greater greater uh, not character, but in terms of power and ability, Lucifer, who became Satan, was was the highest of God's creation before he sinned against God. Even Michael would not speak against Lucifer or Satan. So the person being confined here is Satan, our adversary. The word Satan means adversary. He's a striver. He's a rebellious one by nature. He rebels against God, and one day he will be totally put down. So we've seen the place of Satan's confinement, the power over the abyss is God. The person being confined is Satan. Fourthly, the period of Satan's confinement. The text tells us here very clearly that it's a thousand years. In fact, I think about six times there, the word a thousand is used here in Revelation chapter 20 in terms of how long is the millennium? How long is Satan bound for? Again, generally both all millennialists and post-millennialists, these are people with different views of the millennium than we are, as I just repeat from last time, we, we adhere to what's called premillennialism. We believe that Jesus comes back 
before his reign. Because you, as you look at the scriptures naturally and literally, there is a, a flow, a chronological flow that shows Jesus coming back before the millennium is, happens. So we are pre-millennialists. Jesus comes back before the millennium. There are those who say there is no millennium, the all-millennialists. There are those who say Jesus goes and he comes back at the very end of the millennium. They are called post-millennialists. And so here, the thousand years is in reference to the length of the millennium. And all millennialists and post-millennialists do not believe in the literalness of that number. They would say it's figurative. And so as a result, they would say, um, you know, Satan is, not, is bound today. Uh, we're, if we're in the millennium now, as the all-millennialists would say, that the church age is the millennium, Satan is bound. We are free to preach the gospel. The gospel is going out. Uh, and so Satan is bound. But the thing is, when you look at Scripture, Satan is active all over the place. He is called in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world. What does that mean? It means he has control over this world. He is also called, secondly, he, Satan also schemes against believers. We find that in 2 Corinthians 2 and Ephesians chapter 6. He's a schemer. He schemes against believers. Thirdly, he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we find that. Fourthly, he attacks believers. Um, and James 4 says he must be resisted. He must be resisted. How do you deal with the devil believer? You resist him. Fifthly, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 18, he actually hinders those who are in ministry. He hinders those who are trying to do the work of God. He leads believers astray, 1 Timothy 5.15. He holds people captive through deception, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26. All of those things describe that he is active today. He's not inactive. He's not been neutralized. Not as the all-millennialists or the post-millennialists would have you kind of believe as they kind of reinterpret the binding or the incarceration of Satan to mean that he's, he's not really that powerful today. I mean, you're going to talk to different ones and you might get a slightly different twist on it. But we know that he is active. And it's for a thousand years that he's going to be thrown into this abyss. Now, one of the comments that people will often say, well, doesn't the Bible say in Peter that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day? And I would say, yeah, it does say that. But it does not say that a thousand years is a day. It just says a thousand years is as a day. The word as is very critical. It's describing that with God, a day, or from his perspective, he's outside of time. God is outside of time, but he's the one who created time. You go back to Genesis 1, he's the one who created morning and night. He's the one who created uh, the 24-hour period. He's the one who created the, the sun and the moon and, and the things that create uh, our calendar system on a regular basis as we see these heavenly bodies go through their, their ordained gyrations. Uh, God is the one who put those things into place. Time to God is not the same as time to you and me, but God knows what a thousand years is. He created the years. He knows what a day is. He created the 24-hour day. It doesn't mean that God does not know the difference between a day and a thousand years. It's not that he's confused at all. So to take that verse in Peter and try to make it apply that, that this number of a thousand is simply sort of an ethereal, nondescript 
way of talking about a length of time is to take the scriptures and to abuse them. We want to take the scriptures as naturally and as literally as we can, understanding that there are figures of speech, like Satan is called the dragon, like Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Those are figures of speech that describe a certain reality. We understand that there are figures of speech to be understood in a literal way, but when we can understand things in their natural way and literal way, that's how we interpret Scripture. And again, I remind you that many Bible scholars and pastors and teachers, again, want to abuse this. But six times in the text here, I've got it underlined in my Bible, every time the word a thousand years, the phrase is used, I've got it underlined in here in chapter 20. There in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. That's, uh, what, six times in six verses. A thousand years is mentioned. So if I were to ask you, as a pop quiz, how long is the millennium class? thousand years. You get the star, the gold star, Judith. It is a thousand years. And that's what the text says. God intends for us to understand the kingdom reign of Christ is for a thousand years. Now, bring it down to a close here. I'm going to look like I'm tracking early this morning. I must have skipped something. This takes me to my last point. I just can't believe I've breezed through these this fast. Oh, well, I guess you get a break today. Um, the fifth point here, which is very, very critical, verse 3, the purpose of the confinement. Why was Satan confined? And this will slosh over, over into next week as we look at the next section of verses. But the purpose of the confinement is really twofold there in verse 3. The first purpose of two, and I don't have these on the board here, but if you're going to write notes, the first purpose is the prevention of deception. Because in the time of the millennial kingdom, Satan activity will be not just merely restricted, but it will be totally eliminated. He's bound in the abyss. Acts 3 verse 19 talks about the millennium as the times of refreshing. Acts 3.19. Acts 3.21 talks about a period of the restoration of all things. So God completely here eliminates Satan's freedom. He throws him into the abyss, shuts it, seals it, so that there will not be anyone that he can deceive any longer. No person, no nation will be touched by his influences for that period of a thousand years. And just think about the world. The world's going to be, because of that, the world's going to be a dramatically different different type of place during that thousand years. For instance, there'll be no satanic enterprises. There'll be no planned parenthood. Uh, there'll be no whatever satanic enterprise you can think of. Uh, there'll be no satanic ideologies. No satanic philosophies. No demonic theories of justice or or gender. No demonic theories on anything. No satanic theories of morality. No satanic theories of, of uh, social behavior or social life. No satanic maxims. No satanic opinions. None of that. The whole demonic world is incarcerated along with Satan, and Jesus Christ sets the agenda for the entire world. Satan is irrelevant for that thousand years. Irrelevant. And when God does that, it will totally change the world. Just by getting Satan and his minions out of the way. Now, the text goes on to say, with a very non-specific, now we, we see the thousand years mentioned six times in six verses, but in verse three, it tells us that the very end of the millennium, he's going to be released for a short time. Now that's rather nondescript. Well, Lord, how long is a short time? Well, I don't know. Six months? A year? Five years? I don't know. 
But he's released, all it says is for a short time. We don't know how long Satan is going to be released for. He's going to be released and his minions back on the earth. But the first purpose of his being confined in verse 3 is the prevention of deception. Now the second purpose there in verse 3 that's mentioned there is the preparations for defection. The preparations for defection. Um, he's going to be released, and this is going to lead into verses 4 through 6, which we'll get into next time a little bit, because many seem to believe that Satan himself is responsible for the sins of men. I'll back up again. In other words, you remember back, and I've talked about this before, back when I was growing up, there was a TV show that my parents liked to watch. It was called the Flip Wilson, Flip Wilson Comedy Show. And and he would always say his catchphrase was, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Everything that went wrong, the devil made me do it. Well, we can't say that. People in the millennium, well, we could say that today, I guess, to, to a degree, but in the millennium, you will not be able to say, you know, the devil made me do that. No, because he's not around. And during the millennium, there'll be a growing number of people who will be born who will have sinful, perverted hearts. But at the very beginning of the millennium, as we've already said, the only people who enter the millennium are righteous people. There are the glorified saints who are there. At the same time, people who make it through the tribulation, who are, obviously that would be the believers, because the non-believers are, are done with at the end of the tribulation. Believers, righteous people go into the millennium. They've yet to be glorified. And so we get the impression here of the millennium as a place, as a period where there are glorified people and righteous people who are yet, who have yet to be glorified living at the same time in the same world for this period of time. The unglorified people these righteous people now will be having babies. And those babies are going to be born like any other child is born with a sin nature. And over the period of a thousand years, as you multiply births on, on, on the earth, you're going to find a growing number of people who have sinful, perverted hearts, and they will resent the authority of Christ because their hearts are sinful. They do not want to be drawn close to him. They despise him and hate him, even though he's ruling on the earth, even though he's a loving, righteous, benevolent dictator. There will be people being born who will despise that and will chafe at the bit at being ruled by Christ. And they would love an opportunity to defect from Christ, but they can't, and so they will be waiting for an opportunity. And when Satan is finally released, verse 3, he has a ready group of people who are ready to be used by him to try to rebel against Christ. Their hearts are already against Christ. And so... Um, that's what we're going to see here. Um, now, again, not, not all of these newborns during the millennium will resent and rebel against Christ. Many of them, I would take it, would be drawn to him and love him. But there will be some who will despise him, despise Christ. And so Satan will be released. Why will he be released? To, for really two reasons. When he's released, it will demonstrate... First of all, that he has never changed. In a thousand years in the abyss, Satan will not have changed one iota. God releases Satan. Uh, Satan does not learn his lesson. He's the very same foolish person that he's been for many, many, many years. And um, he hasn't changed a bit. Kind of, kind of reminds me a little bit that... Um, Incarcerating people typically does not rehab a person. Just sort of a side note. Incarcerating people does not rehab them. Even though there are people who think prisons 
rehab people, it, it doesn't really work that way, does it? So he is released, and he is the same old devil. But a second thing, a second reason that he's released is to demonstrate that the human heart, by its very nature, is wicked. And that there are going to be people, despite having gone through the millennium and lived with Christ ruling the world, there will be people born with a sin nature who are more than willing, even at that point, to rebel against Christ. So Satan is released, and he draws these people to himself, these wicked souls, and the human heart is is not bad because of external forces, by the way. Why is the human heart bad? It's bad because it's inherently bad. It's inwardly bad. Men can be wicked without Satan. We don't have to have Satan on the earth in order to be wicked. Men are wicked because of their nature being wicked. And so, but when Satan is released, he is, um, he has a ready number of people. So I would say this, that Satan cannot be blamed for my sin or for your sin. So there's really a huge object lesson regarding the depravity of man and the justice of God in all of this. Man is inherently depraved. God is going to demonstrate that depravity by having a thousand years where men have his righteous rule on earth, and yet there will be men born who still reject him, even though Satan is in the abyss. And then he releases him simply to prove the point that man is inherently evil. Satan cannot be rehabbed even after a thousand years. So that is the temporary incarceration of Satan. I say, oh, there it is. I did have it on there. So the purposes of the confinement was the prevention of deception. In other words, Satan is taken out of the way. All of his satanic ideologies and philosophies are no longer there, or no longer on earth. And the preparations for defections, he's, he's then in his confinement. Unsaved men are born. Who then, who are ready, who are like a ready army to come to Satan. The moment he's released from confinement, there will be defectors who are ready to join him because of their own depravity. Having said all this, I bring it to a close. I say this based on Romans 6. How do I handle my sin as a believer today? I know every day I get out of bed and I get my coffee, I go down to my office, I open my Bible, and I'm confronted with me again. And I have found that I am my own worst enemy. Not you, not my wife, not my kids that I have a sin nature that has to be every day quelled and put down, and I have to draw near to him, and I, I flee to passages like Romans 6. Romans 6, and we just close by reading verses 1 through 12, where Paul, he's been talking to the Romans, and we'll get to this someday with a little more detail, because this is such a pivotal passage on the sanctification of the believer, the growth of the believer. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Uh, because he has said that we're, just a few verses before that in chapter 5, where he has said where sin has abounded, grace is much more abounded. So if God's grace abounds when we sin, let's just, so the implication is, somebody, some people might think, well, I might as well just keep sinning because the more I sin, the more God's grace is available. Where my sin abounds, grace abounds much more. 
And Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, no, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin, you're a believer, you've died to sin, how should you still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, that's not water baptism there, that's being placed into Christ, those of us who've been placed into Christ have been placed into his death, Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, uh, excuse me, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no, no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, here it is. Here's the practical of this for me every day and for you every day. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. You see, I if I do that, the devil is really of inconsequence even today to me. But I give the devil a little bit of foothold when I begin to incrementally coddle up to a sin. Instead of saying, I'm dead to that sin, and Satan's not going to get a foothold in my life, we begin to get closer and closer to it, and then Satan kind of comes in and keeps squeezing us and squeezing us over that. But you see, if as a believer today, you say, I am dead, then you will not fall prey to the wiles of the devil. That is the temporary confinement of Satan. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you. For your word this morning, we know that you have a plan and a purpose. And your plan and a purpose is to bring about your perfect will on this earth, to restore the earth to which you originally intended it, that you will work out that plan and nothing, not even Satan himself, can thwart your plan. Thank you, Jesus, that you have allowed us to be part of your plan and your mission. Help us, Lord, to be bold in our living, to be relentless in our desire to know you and to know your word and to share the gospel with those who need to hear. We thank you for these moments together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.